36 stores, you have landlords who are really not happy with you. You have suppliers not happy with you. You have them talking to their lawyers. And the rumor mill was a vine pharmaceutical is bust. It's just a matter of time. Okay, so this is a full-blown crisis. Yes, and I knew it. And I knew it. Welcome to the second season of Grit and Growth from Stanford Seed, the show where Africa and South Asia's intrepid entrepreneurs share their trials and triumphs with insights from Stanford faculty on how to tackle challenges and grow your business. In Africa, franchising is still in its infancy. There are plenty of global franchises on the continent, but far fewer local businesses that use the same model across Africa. And many of the structures that govern franchises across the world aren't really set up. In their absence, entrepreneurs have had to get creative. So we wanted to do an episode specifically on franchising in Africa. What is the state of the African franchising ecosystem? What are the challenges for operators and how are they adapting? Now that's a lot to cover, but we found the perfect people to do it. A Nigerian franchise expert working to build training programs and successful systems across the African market, and an operator who has been running his business in Uganda for over two decades. Uh, Grace Munira, founder and uh, CEO of Vine Pharmaceuticals. Currently, we run a chain of 15 shops uh, in Uganda and have been running that for the last 23 years. Grace has an amazing story of how he came to franchising and how he adapted the model to meet his particular needs. But first, let's set the scene. Grace doesn't have any formal business training, but he's better read than a lot of MBAs and me. You sound like a guy who's read some books about business, about entrepreneurship. Is that true? Uh, yes. I, that one I'll admit. I've, I've done so. Can you tell us some of the books you've read that you would recommend to other entrepreneurs? Principles by Red Dalio. Very, very, very good book. Start with Why by Simon Sinek. Uh, good to Great by Jim Collins. Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. That's a very seminal book. What Got You Here Won't Get You There, Marshall Goldsmith. Patrick Lenshoni, The Advantage, Five Dysfunctions of a Team, Team of Teams by uh, Stanley McChrystal, a very good one. I'm humbled by the fact that you've read a lot more management books than I have. Some of the ones you mentioned are actually on the shelf right here in my office, but I haven't read them, so I'm a little bit embarrassed about that too. If I don't read... I will make many mistakes. I want to treat people well. And how else would I know how to treat people well if I don't read? There are people who have made mistakes ahead of me. And so why shouldn't I learn from those people who have made the mistakes? Okay, now you know me. Now you said the word mistake. You said the word mistake. And this is supposed to be a podcast where people can learn. So what was the biggest mistake you made as you grew from... One pharmacy to three to 36. So we'd grown from one to three because we were known to be getting medications that were very hard to get. We were a go-to pharmacy. And that gave us a lot of traction into the market. Uh, we grew so fast. I think every year we're doing like six to eight acquisitions. Then we grew to 36. We are good and we're selling. And then I ran promotions. I said, okay, if we hit this figure, we'll go down South Africa. I took 17 people to South Africa. We had fun. 
Then I said, look, uh, we hit this milestone again. We'll go to Dubai. Off we went to Dubai. So even my incentive structure was really out of emotion. Later on, I realized I was giving away margin and I was actually making a loss. So I would instinctively say, okay, fine, we have a 100 million mark. If we go beyond 100 mark, everyone gets 10%. So would go, you know, people would shoot for 200 and then I would give out big checks. And yet what I'm giving away is really capital. So <laughs> no one was there to guide me and tell me, look, your margin is 15% and you're giving away. I mean, the thing is, well, like, but Grace, you know, so first of all, I mean, you sound like you were kind of a cool boss, right? Like, you know, you hit your targets, you get a bonus check, you might get to go to Dubai, you might get to go to South Africa. I mean, it's not, those are not terrible practices if, as long as they're grounded in reality, right? I mean, like... <laughs> Exactly, exactly. But far from it, the words I was speaking were not calculated. They were not embedded in a logic, a mathematical model where it makes sense. You know, it's not everyone that is cut out for the disciplines, for the demands required to build a successful, sustainable business. That's the voice of Chiagozi Nwizu, someone who's dedicated his career to today's subject. My name is Chiagozi Nwizu, um, Managing Director of Africa Franchise Institute. I also am an Executive Director at a Franchise Association, and um, I lead a consulting firm, Franchise Business Development Services. For all that he'd read, Grace was still inexperienced as an entrepreneur something that Chiagozi had seen all too often in his previous life. I was in the banking sector, an SME advisory consultant, uh, supporting hundreds of thousands of entrepreneurs with a, a particular Nigerian, a leading Nigerian bank in SME banking. Um, so during those years, while advising these businesses and helping them to become bankable, yeah, something became very clear that we have a very high rate of business failure among these businesses that uh, many businesses were folding up. So with, with that, I began to think, wait a minute. I think really we need to give many of these startup entrepreneurs a chance to begin to leverage proven businesses, you know, so that they would do more of managing businesses with proven systems. They could leverage the brand that is popular and all of that and be able to get into business than struggling to get the business off the ground. So that was when the idea of enabling franchising, that's how, how it came about. In addition to bolstering a new generation of entrepreneurs, franchising offers a path to longevity that's been elusive even for successful businesses. Another thing we also tell them is that they have a chance of um, operating in a more structured way and also in a sustainable way, a businesses that could outlive them. Because if you look around Nigeria and Africa, there are very few businesses that are transgenerational. So you see few businesses that are second generation or third generation business. So they get to understand that the business could scale, expand beyond the local region, maybe the country, into some other countries because it has systems that, that helps it to grow as an entity. And this is supported by the research, as you said. Family businesses 
tend to fail after the first generation across the African continent. I think the failure rate is something like 67 to 70% of family businesses don't survive to the second generation. And then a very, very small, small percentage survive to the third generation. And so franchising as a way to give your business longevity is a really interesting perspective, and I appreciate that. However, in Africa, there's still a knowledge gap about how the model works. For us to make progress with the franchise model in Nigeria, we will need to begin to have the smart franchisor and the smart investor. And being smart is being franchise literate, that is understanding the franchise model and um, how it operates. So I will categorize all these things under knowledge gap. That knowledge gap spans all sorts of franchising principles, including one of the most fundamental, the relationship between the franchiser and the franchisee. One thing about franchising is that parties are coming together to bring values to the table. It is a marriage where both parties, any party that is not doing its own deeds, it is going to nullify the essence of their coming together. Um, so some of the things we found was that, again, the support of the franchisors, of those franchisors were not there. They were more vested in opening more locations than they were in seeing that their franchise partners get the required support to operate, not just even to operate profitably, but to be able to deliver and extend the brand goodwill and promises to the customers, right? So you begin, you begin to see situations where at certain locations, the franchisee, way early within the stage of adopting the, the franchise, begins to deviate from what the public or the, the market you know, knew as the quality of that very brand. So, for example, a food business which um, begins to taste differently or maybe people begin to eat sour meals because they, you know, cutting corners, people begin to cut corners to run the business and it begins to affect the quality of the products and the quality of the services. Although Vine Pharmaceuticals had not yet pivoted to franchising, the patterns of overexpansion and mismanagement were familiar to Grace. So because we're expanding fast, suppliers were coming to us and wanting us to sell their product. And so we kept expanding, but we managed our credit badly. And so the credit kept on ballooning and ballooning and ballooning. Credit from suppliers. From suppliers, yes. And because we were walking on water and everything we're touching was turning to gold, ego, pride got ahead of us. We opened locations that were not sustainable. We opened locations that were not supposed to open at all. Part of the danger of overexpansion is that the business surpasses the management capacity of the founder, as observed by our franchise expert, Chegozi. The second thing is what we call the key man risk. Because again, the second most critical challenge of the franchisor is that he cannot be everywhere the oversight challenge. He's not able to see what is happening at the many locations. So we've seen a lot of um, businesses in Nigeria that have done very well up until when the expansion reached to a level where the owner of the business is not able to have an oversight, not just oversight by physically being there, but the demands of checking on the daily performance 
keeping to the standards, the health check on the business. I had an RFP system that worked after about 10, but beyond 10, there were so many moving parts that I was not really in, in control of. And so the way you throw so many balls in the air, some of them will come down. So I had an ERP, but then the ERP, but with many locations, we wouldn't get the data in real time. So if you got data for sales, you didn't get the data for inventory. So by the time you got the inventory data, the sales will have already changed. And so everything was just going south. So you're accumulating a lot of debt. Yeah. You don't necessarily know which shops are profitable. You've got inventory and sales mismatch. Did you also have, like, was there fraud? Were people cooking the books? There was. There was a lot of fraud. Ah, let's hear about that. People, they knew that we wouldn't get real-time data. So one shop would call for uh, stock from another shop, and they would sell it and pocket the money. And so if a customer came and needed stock from shop A, Shop A would call shop B and say, hey, look, the customer needs two pieces of this. We only have one piece. Send across another piece. So they would send it over. And that would be sold and pocketed. You wouldn't have time to reconcile inter-branch transfers. Then we tried uh, rotating the, the staff. So you say, Jane, who was in shop C, moved to shop B. And Peter, who was in shop A, moved to shop uh, P. And then... All the bad habits that Peter had in shop A would be transferred to shop M. Yeah, you're putting the one rotten apple back into the bag with the other apples. Yes, so there was a lot of cross-fertilization of habits until you just had one ball of health. I was really stuck. Well, tell tell me what stuck means. Stuck is 36 stores, what else? 36 stores, you have suppliers, right? You have landlords who are really not happy with you. You have suppliers not happy with you. You have them talking to their lawyers, right? And you owe everybody money. You owe the landlords money. You owe the suppliers money. And I owe the staff money. So you're having trouble making payroll. Correct. Wow. Okay, so that's like fully stuck. You're you're basically insolvent. And the rumor mill was a vine pharmaceutical is bust. It's just a matter of time. Okay, so this is a full-blown crisis. Yes, and I knew it. And I knew it. Grace could feel the business that he had built slipping through his fingers. So he took drastic action. So the first thing I did was to fire the entire management team. Yeah, I cried. A few times I've cried, but that time I cried. I said, look, you guys, uh, you all have to go. And then I burst out into tears. They went. So I became the management team. To settle his debts, Grace started selling off profitable stores and closing unprofitable ones. In a short time, Vine gave up 25 of its locations. I like to say that we grew them backwards to 11, but then the toll on me was really huge because I was literally hiring and firing and balancing the books and paying and doing payroll and training. And so, I thought there must be a way around. So that's when I thought to myself, you know what? I think I need to try out franchising. Does Uganda have clear franchising laws? Are there local Uganda franchises that are successful that you can look to for inspiration? No, there's none. There's none. There's no Ugandan restaurant chain 
No, you you will have a small chain, maybe of three or four, but then they're not franchised. Wow. I don't know whether that's an advantage or, or any disadvantage. <laughs> the lack of a legal framework isn't unique to Uganda. It's true all over the continent. The absence of the legal framework was a major deterrent to many really franchise viable businesses um, in Nigeria who are yet to adopt franchising. Basically, they are concerned, if I may just put a bit of explanation to that, is that they wouldn't want a situation where the franchisee brings their business to disrepute, you know, and they are not able to bring in control or maybe, you know, end up in a court trying to resolve issues, which they, I mean, they didn't have the time for. So what we had to do, that is what currently in the interim has begun to encourage a number of businesses to get into franchising. At the meantime, while we are trying to put in the, the regulatory system in place is that we introduced what we call alternative dispute resolution, you know, means through small claim courts, arbitration, and all of that. So now at the point of developing the franchise, the franchisor is happy to know that um, he could create um, in the contract an avenue for him and the franchisee to resolve issues without going to the court. A legal framework isn't the only support structure that franchises need to be successful. In every country you look at where franchising is um, doing very well, you would realize that there are key institutions that have to be there. There has to be a franchise association, um, a franchise institute that provides the training. Some other things like um, having access to the right funding to operate the business. So there were struggles among those early adopters that had gone into franchising because they had to do everything all by themselves. It is not so at other regions. The franchisors are supposed to have institutions that support them. So one of the key points you made here was this, the need to have a basic ecosystem there to support the growth of franchising as a business growth model in these countries. So, and I, and I guess that's the gap you decided you could fill in Nigeria by creating the various institutional bodies and frameworks that you're responsible for. So I appreciate that. I've not seen even beyond Nigeria at other regions where franchising is, is established. There is no entrepreneur that develops a franchise model without the support of an expert. So um, it would be much more catastrophic and a big mistake for an entrepreneur in this uh, part of the world where that know-how is not, is not there to want to develop a franchise model all by himself. In the absence of laws, these franchise associations can act as a regulator themselves. Then in South Africa, franchising is pretty much advanced in South Africa. To my knowledge, there is not yet a franchise law. However, they have a very functional franchise association. It is my opinion that the franchise associations have you know, helped a whole lot more in um, regulating the franchise sector, especially with regards to the relationship between the parties, because these associations, just like FASA, FASA means Franchise Association of South Africa, does this very regulation and has done a good job with that by putting codes of conduct ethics in place to say, if you are going to operate as a franchisor, 
These are the ethics of conduct. These are the responsibilities. These are the qualifications. These are the roles you should play. So by providing those code of conduct ethics, the members of that very franchise association are mandated and they have to keep to these very ethics for the fear of being disenfranchised, you know, being, you know, removed from uh, as a member of that very body. Because the moment that is done is is signals to other parties that they would like to be in relationship with that they are not doing well, you know, or they probably they are dubious, they are not to be trusted as 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 the case may be. Internal processes matter too. Grace has created a similar system of checks and balances within Vine Pharmaceuticals. I think sometimes I'm a little bit too fast in action. So what we have of recently done, we, we decided to form a committee of franchises that can help keep them you know, following a set of rules, but also let it not be a me versus one, a small group of franchises who will kind of protect me from them and them from me. And so if I have a problem with, uh, let's say one of them, I say, hey, look, uh, look at Steven. This is wrong. That is wrong. Please talk to Steven and see that uh, they are able to rectify that before I, want, before I step in uh, with my guns blazing. So I want to be able to ask you guys to talk to your colleague and see if they can uh, shape up before things go south. When we left off, Vine Pharmaceuticals was at its lowest and downsizing significantly. Grace was running everything. So Grace, I mean, what I love about the story is that, you know, you were the victim of your own management style, right? You built this team, you built all these systems and processes. You had an epiphany. Yes. And the epiphany was driven by the fact that you were about to go out of business. Yes. Franchising was Vine's last hope. But think about the business ecosystem that we just described. Uganda had no laws, no franchise association, no history of local franchising to build from. Without those external supports, Grace had to construct his franchise model from scratch. So actually, I didn't know it was, it was even going to be franchising. I said, look, suppose we actually do this, right? This day is a store, store A. If I gave it to you, and you run it, can we do an open book in a way that you benefit, I benefit, and everyone is happy? That's step number one. Grace had to adapt the franchise model to fit Ugandan realities. And one way he did that was by taking on more risk than is typical for a franchiser. For example, a Vine franchisee doesn't sign the store's commercial lease. Grace does. I mean, I think this is a really key difference between a sort of what I think of as a franchise here in the United States and the model that you're practicing. Because, I mean, one point of a franchise is to be asset light. You grow with other people's money, which means other people signing those leases with those landlords, not you. And their failure at the end of the day doesn't affect your business. I mean, at least on the on the bottom line. So, that's what I'm, I'm really curious about this model because it's not really asset light. You're still the owner of the assets. I have to have an advantage I bring to the table. It will become asset light when I get an optimal number and a given brand visibility. Then it will become asset light. But at this level, I have to be asset heavy 
And then this is one of the advantages I bring to the table. I think at about 50, then I'll begin having being asset light where I can give you the, the name and then you put up the infrastructure. So that's really interesting. So this is almost a transition model to build the systems and processes and discipline and understanding and your own team. But the long run vision would be a more traditional franchise model that's asset light. Correct. Whereas the balance of responsibilities tends to be more established in other parts of the world, flexible structures are something Chiagosi sees often in his work. There are models where, like we've set up a couple of franchises in the agricultural sector, you know, where we realized it was going to be better for franchise fees not to be paid because the type of people that are to become the franchisees would not appreciate intellectual property because the franchise fee largely is demanded for the what we call the, the, the brand goodwill, intellectual property, the investment that the franchisor had made in building the that brand that, that sells. So now we, in, in such models, we had created the system in a way that the franchisee would pay ongoing fees over the lifetime of the franchise, which is usually an average of five years. Grace also had to rethink the kind of franchisees that he would work with. Instead of approaching investors with capital, Grace asked existing managers to purchase the stores that they were already running, sometimes at a steep discount. The thing was, there was a balance between uh, the people I wanted to get and I could have gotten that had the money. But then there was a way we were doing things within our vine culture that they understood how we run and the ethics that we keep, but they didn't have the money I wanted. So there were people who offered me the money I wanted, but then I had to reject it because I couldn't take them on. They wouldn't understand how we run. But then on the other hand, I couldn't give away the store to these people free. So I had to find a hybrid, a model that worked. That's really fascinating. So the people with the money, what is it that they, you know, franchising is in, in the U.S., it's a highly structured business. So you almost imprint the culture on the investor, right? You didn't feel like you could pull that off with these deep pocket potential investors? No. So there's a bit of the population that has to understand what franchising is and the advantage. And so that is why you continuously teach even the people that you work with that this is what franchising is and this is what it's not. Sometimes people with money don't understand that to take some long time to make uh, good money. So they have short-term goals. They don't want to be fully deployed there. They want to simply invest the money and maybe leave a son or the wife there and then expect this to grow. That couldn't work. The risk was very high. So I chose not to go that route. Usually, money and management experience are prerequisites for opening a franchise. But in an environment where both are scarce, you may have to compromise or at least prioritize. In our previous episode on franchising, Indian businessman Vijay Kapoor said that when it comes to his franchisees, passion is more important than payment. That means lowering the financial barrier for potential partners who don't have the upfront investment capital. And this trend is mirrored in Africa. Across the continent, franchisers are creating models to make it easier for people to join up, despite their limited capital. Chiagosi even has a name for it. 
there's also what we call the micro franchise model, which I, I, I know you definitely be interested uh, to know more about. So in the micro franchise model, the franchisee who is usually poor people who do not have a lot of money to invest, they are not required to bring in all of the capital. The uh, franchisor would make part of that investment, you know, and then the franchisee would be working and um, from what you may call his wages, right? He begins to buy back his interest and ownership of that very business. So these are some of the variances in the franchise model that have been created, especially to work in um, Africa and um, especially in places where people are not so exposed to a structured system so that it could still deliver, you know, the dividends and opportunities of franchising um, and still enabling the knowledge transfer, you know, from the franchisor to the franchisee. This question of micro-franchising is very interesting to me, and it reflects the fact that sometimes the people with money may not necessarily be good operators and managers, and the people who have maybe grown up in your business and who, who have learned to become managers of your specific business might actually be really good franchisees, if not for their lack of capital. So the micro-franchising model allows them to slowly build their equity in the business. But what you're really getting with them is somebody who actually understands the brand, they understand the model, the business model, they understand how to make that store or that premise function. Without defined structures in place, it's imperative for franchisors to keep an eye on their franchisees and offer creative support when needed. One of the mistakes uh, initially we made was we didn't have controls on the finances. So people were not fully banking the, the sales that were being made. So the franchises we'd gotten were rewarding themselves at the cost of the employees. I'll give you an example. So when we said the franchisees should pay the employee, then we said by the first week, the employees should be paid. And some were going into the, third, the second and third week without being paid. So then we said, oh, no, 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 no. Let's ensure all the employees are paid. So now what we do is, okay, let's say you have four employees. Their pay is X amount, $1,000. Remit the $1,000 to us and we will give it to the employees. So we'll just be a collection point and then remit it to the employees so that we know that the employees' payroll is done. So they're covering the cost of payroll, but you're managing payroll centrally. Yes. And in an environment where franchising is so new, perhaps the biggest shift is philosophical changing the focus from growing yourself to supporting your franchisee. The team at headquarters is really a support team. Their role is not just to drink piña colada. Their role is to look out and see what can really help uh, the shops perform better. And how do we know we've done a good job? We've done a good job when the sales go up. When the shops win, we win. So what's next? Well, in Nigeria, some of the informal structures around franchising are becoming official. Currently, we have a franchise bill. It was introduced sometime in 2016. But currently, interestingly, the Nigeria Economic Summit Group, um, so they have come in and they brought stakeholders together and the significant progress has been made with regards to the bill where a very good representation of the stakeholders had come together. So we are quite hopeful that the franchise bill is going to be passed to law 
But Chiagosi's work won't stop with the passage of a law because he sees franchising as an important tool for the future of African business. We have quite a number of models in Nigeria that have done incredibly well, which um, we need to begin to bring to the forefront. So it begins to encouraging African business entrepreneurs to take up franchising because the risk that African businesses run is the risk of not um, having a transition, right? You see many successful businesses that do not outlive the business owner. If they had gotten franchised, you know, the case would have been different. We need to begin to see businesses that have potential for scale and expansion to export their products and services to other regions, um, even beyond Africa. They don't know how to do that. The franchise model would definitely help them to become global brands, you know, if they would only have access to this information. Franchising is a complex business model. It relies on established structures, laws, standards, knowledge bases. In large part, these aren't prevalent across Africa, but people like Chiagosi are working to change that, and entrepreneurs like Grace are forging their own path. To succeed, African franchisers will need to be adaptable. It's not the plug-and-play option it is in other parts of the world. They may need to take on more risk or spend more time supporting their branches. They'll need to lean on associations and to share with and learn from their peers. But even though franchising might take more work in this environment, the primary benefits, growth and survival, are still extremely valuable. Franchising could be the difference between a company that ends with you and one that gets passed down for generations. And for Grace, that's worth it. What really, really hurts me that may be peculiar to this part of the world is that many businesses go die after the founder dies. Uh, six months down the road or one year down the road, the businesses are no more. So that's not what a story I want to write. I want to have a story that can really help the company survive way beyond its founder. That Vine is still existing way beyond my lifetime. I want to thank our guests, Chiagosi Nuizu and Grace Munirwa, for sharing their efforts and their stories. This has been Grit and Growth with the Stanford Graduate School of Business, and I'm your host, Darius Teeter. If you like this episode, leave us a review on your podcast app. It really helps us to share the stories of these incredible entrepreneurs with as many people as possible. To learn how Stanford Graduate School of Business is partnering with entrepreneurs in Africa and Asia, head over to the Stanford Seed website at seed.stanford.edu slash podcast. Grit and Growth is a podcast by Stanford Seed. Erica Amoake and VN Virgin researched and developed content for this episode. Kendra Gladich is our production coordinator, and our executive producer is Tiffany Steves with writing and production from Andrew Gannon and sound design and mixing by Alex Bennett at Lower Street Media. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.